like when I was editing Grey's Anatomy, I'm basically just cutting the, the performances into the way it was scripted. There's no to little improv on a show like that. They write the scripts, they like what they've written, and they want it shot that way and edited that way. Whereas the exact opposite is Curb Your Enthusiasm, obviously, where it's entirely improvised. And so it's on me to figure it out in the editing room how to build a scene out of every, all these, every take is different. So they rely on me to become a, a partner in the storytelling. It's my great pleasure today to welcome triple-time Emmy-nominated editor, filmmaker, and author Roger Nygaard, who is best known for his documentary films Trackies, The Nature of Existence, and The Truth About Marriage. Roger's also directed popular TV series such as The Office and The Bernie Mac Show and co-produced and edited the docuseries The Comedy Store. His latest book, Cut to the Monkey, is about making and editing hit comedy series which shares invaluable wisdom from comedic luminaries such as Sasha Baron Cohen, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and Larry David. Join us as we trace Roger's exciting journey from growing up on the north arm of Lake Minnetonka to mailing out 1,000 resumes to eventually making it big as a Hollywood editor, cutting hit TV shows such as Curb Your Enthusiasm, Grey's Anatomy, Veep, Who is America, and more. We also get deep as he spills the secret to having a happy relationship and what, according to him, is the meaning of life. Roger Nygaard, thank you so much for coming down to Hennessy Studios to be here on the show, man. Happy to be here. Every day I wake up alive, I'm just happy to be here. Yeah, it's a good good way of living, right? <laughs> so I see you wear so many different hats, and we're going to kind of dissect uh, them all. Editor, director, author, speaker, producer, and then a documentarian. I didn't even know that was a word. Yeah, I get I, it's not that I get bored. I like to alternate and switch it up because I find that doing one thing, whether it's writing or producing or editing, informs the other discipline. And mm -hmm. I get better at the other things by becoming good at whatever it is that I'm doing. Sure. So I do get a little bit, I like to challenge myself and pick things that I am maybe not as good at. Mm -hmm. Although I get tired of doing the same thing over and over. I guess that's the long way of saying that. Sure. Plus you only have, you have a legacy, right? To leave to this world, right? And you don't want your legacy just to be that single myopic kind of thing too, right? That's kind of how I'm, that's why I'm doing this podcast, to be honest with you. My, <laughs> like, my legacy up until this point has been like a digital marketer. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I, want, I think I've got so much more to give to this world. That's such a, an important point. When I interviewed Irvin Kirshner, who directed Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, mm -hmm. I asked him, what, do you, what is an afterlife? Do you believe in an afterlife? What are your thoughts on the afterlife? And he said, the afterlife is what you leave behind for people. Yeah. And so for him, you know, it was his creativity and producing, writing, directing the tangible effects of your existence or what you leave behind for other generations. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've got sites like Wikipedia to prove it, right? <laughs> right. That's my goal is that you got to have a Wikipedia page about you before you die. Right. Yeah. Uh, otherwise well, you probably just didn't live your best life. I it's kind know. of on you though. I've noticed to fill it up with stuff. Too. It, it is. <laughs> yes. You're right. Yeah. And so we're going to be talking about how you've been filling your Wikipedia page up. <laughs> So let's go back, though, because you don't just kind of start out in Hollywood as, uh, and you know, I think an Emmy award-winning um, editor. Only nominated so far. Uh, okay, only nominated. I, I've had to go and watch other people win three times. Oh no! 
That's painful. But hey, yeah, I mean, who can say they were even nominated? Like that's no, I'll take it. Right? I'll take that. Yes. Plus, you get a free dinner you at sh- every Emmy thing. You gotta love that, <laughs> right? So go going way back, right? Um, you know, you, where did you grow up? I grew up in. I'm a country boy, I guess. I grew up in Minnesota, outside of Minneapolis. Okay. The western suburbs, a little area called Orono, which is near Lake Minnetonka. I grew up on specifically for those. In Minnesota, on the north arm of Lake Minnetonka. Okay, got and it. Catching frogs and snakes and fishing, swimming and canoeing, almost drowning multiple times, blowing things up. You know, there's not much else to do when you live out in the country. Sure. To try and destroy things. I grew out of that and learned to, that creating things is a better use of my time. Uh-huh. But I grew up out having to sort of learn how to amuse myself. Okay. And I turned that in that turned into making films once I discovered my my dad had an 8mm camera. He left it sitting out one day. And if you leave if you left something sitting out, I would take it apart. Mm-hmm. They learned to put things up high or hide them after a while. But I got my hands on it and these old 8mm cameras were filled with 16 millimeter film that you would shoot one side of it and then go in a dark room, turn it over, shoot the other side, you send it away to be developed, they'd cut it in half and then splice it together and you'd have 8 millimeter a movie to show. Cool. So it was for sh- filming family stuff, but I found it and thought, oh, I want to make a movie like I saw on television. Sure. So I went and filmed the stop motion animation of my Linus and Charlie Brown dolls because I was emulating Gumby, which I had seen on television, mm-hmm. which was the stop motion animation show for kids with really weird themes. I mean, yeah. If you go online and look up Gumby, like Gumby goes into... Uh, the oven one day, it almost gets cooked. <laughs> it's so bizarre and weird, but and that affected me. And I wanted to do it, emulate it. And that was the beginning of my desire to be a filmmaker. And I've never stopped okay. since then. Huh. I mean, it's gotten a little more higher budgets and a little slightly more extravagant and complex, but not much. It's still the same goofy stuff that I did as a kid, kind of just it, cloaked in a little bigger budget. And so what did your parents do for a living? My dad was a grain buyer for General Mills. Okay. General Mills has their corporate headquarters in Minneapolis. I so see. he would drive to General Mills every morning from our little you know house on the lake. And my mother was a housewife. Okay. And um, they met in, co- in high school, actually at high school. They met in high school at Edison High School in Northeast Minneapolis. Still there. And huh. uh, the primary demographics of Northeast Minneapolis at the time were Polish and Scandinavian. Okay. And my, my dad was Norwegian. My mother was Polish. Huh. And, you know, it was sort of a Romeo and Juliet thing, you know, <laughs> yeah. the di- different tribes. And um, they met in high school, got married, and my mother only went to college for two years and then became a housewife because that's what you did in those days. Sure, sure. And were you only a child or did you have Oldest of four. Okay. So I was the bossiest, of course. Yeah. Because that's what you do when you're, you're the king. You know, everyone's smaller than you and you, you get your way. You're used to it. Uh-huh. Uh, probably the dumbest of the four, I think. <laughs> and, and cause my brother, Steve, is a computer expert. Jim, Jay is a mechanical engineer. My, my sister, Teresa, can read a book. And whatever's in it, she can read the book and then she just knows how to do it, whatever it is. Like her, she, she needed to fix her plumbing once, so she read a book on plumbing. Really? And then fixed her plumbing. <laughs> See, I wish I had that power. Not me. <laughs> I'll take. I'll be looking at YouTube videos. You know, rewinding the video, rewinding the video. Like, yeah, that's just me. Yeah. <laughs> so, were you always curious as a kid? Because you seem like a curious kind of guy. Oh yeah, about everything, and and skeptical. Skeptical. My too. my bullshit meter was highly attuned. I realized realized at an early age 
where I started to think that doesn't make any sense. Hmm. So I would start pushing back or asking questions. You know, that typical thing where kids ask why yeah. endlessly, you know, it's yeah. like, and there's until you're backed into a corner. Mm -hmm. That was me because I wanted to know why. Why do we have to go to church? I'm hungry. You're, you're start, you know, we would go to church every Sunday mm -hmm. and we didn't eat breakfast first. We'd go to church first. Sure. Because they were always late, running late and yeah. get four kids or, you know, to church and get dressed up with our suit and tie. And so we have to sit there and starve. And so church for me was how long until pancakes? <laughs> how many more minutes until pancakes? And until finally we go, could go eat. Get it made no pancakes. sense to me. Uh -huh. I didn't understand the show they were putting on. Yeah. Because it's it's a you know it's, it, church is a show exactly good good going to church temple whatever the good ones are really entertaining sure sure because they've got to keep your interest uh -huh. you know with whatever fire and brimstone whatever story they're telling it's if you lose people's as I've learned this as a filmmaker if you lose people's attention for a second it's gone sure you've got to grab them and hold them until you finish your point or the the moral, you get to the moral or whatever the point is of what you're trying to express. Sure. So really good preachers or ministers or rabbis know how to tell a story. Sure, they And do. they know how to be funny. Yeah, and gotta then, keep it entertaining. And then get to the point, which is, okay, now get out your wallets. Yeah, yeah. My, my church story that I remember, and I, I wasn't, like we didn't go to church like every Sunday or anything like that, but we would go occasionally, right? And so I grew up Catholic, I guess, if you want to say Catholic, right? And so I remember sitting there and I was like, maybe like six years old and I'm in the, you know, pew with my, my grandfather and the priest is up there speaking, right? And I, I asked my, my grandpa, I said, who's that? Right. And he, and he says, oh, that's, that's Jesus. And I'm like, wow. I'm like, that's really cool. Right. And so like another week we go there and I look at my grandpa and I go, who's that? And he goes, that's Jesus. And I'm like, I'm confused now. I'm like, boy, did Jesus get old, right? It was like a young <laughs> priest versus a young, old priest, right? And so that was my view, right? You, as a kid, we're curious. We don't know. But anyway, that was my uh, story that kind of reminded me of uh, of church as a kid. <laughs> Plus, yeah, in Catholic churches, they put the full-on tortured Jesus sculpture uh -huh. on the cross. Yeah, they do. You yeah, know, and I put know. it out there for you to like, look at this guy suffering. Yeah. He's been stabbed. <laughs> He's wearing a, a, a crown of thorns. He's bleeding. Yeah. I mean, it's a, like a horror show. I wonder why. Huh. <laughs> you know, like a horror movie, I guess, to, to scare you. See? Into behaving. I guess so. We grew up Episcopalian <laughs> where they eliminated that and you just would see the cross itself. Mm -hmm. It was, I, I always call it like Catholic light. I see. Same prayer books, but not quite as demonic and scary. <laughs> <laughs> so all the edges were softened. Yeah. So you graduate high school. Did you go to college then? Well, yeah. I mean, I knew I was going to be, I wanted to be a filmmaker, a director, any way I could get into the business. So every step I took was to further that okay. goal. So you, you kind of knew what you wanted to do early on in life. The, the earlier you know, the better your chance at success. Sure. Because then you're taking steps in that direction. Yep. And so I went to college. I went to the University of Minnesota because that was right near where I lived. And it was convenient. And to me, I didn't I, I didn't even think of, I've got to get into Harvard or I've got to get into uh, Northwestern or something. Yeah. It was just, I've got to take these classes so that I can improve my knowledge mm -hmm. because a good filmmaker needs to know a little bit about everything sure whether it's physics for the special effects or literature for the writing 
or uh, journalism or whatever, you know, I, so bio, biology, cosmology. I took classes in everything because I was curious, again, about the universe. I wanted to learn about it yeah. and then focus that ultimately in filmmaking somehow. I didn't know how I was going to do that really. And in hindsight, I've got regrets that yeah. I, I could have focused better and differently if I only I'd known. But no, but you don't you don't know everything. You don't know. Yeah. You, you got to kind of figure it out as you go along. But at least I knew my goal was to somehow get to Hollywood and seek my fortune or die trying. Hmm. <laughs> so I, I'm still here. Haven't died. <laughs> I'm still making a go of it. Yeah. <laughs> so you 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 ended up graduating college. And then what took you to Hollywood? Almost the, the day after I graduated, I packed up my brown Celica okay. with whatever I could fit, toasters and spoons and the stuff I would need in an apartment and drove it over the mountains. It, that little four-cylinder car barely made it. I've never tr tried to drive over a mountain before. And I was like, what's wrong with my car? No job, probably not a lot of money <laughs> Didn't know the anybody, bank, right? yeah. knew nothing, except I got an apartment at the one of these... Uh, corporate apartments. It was called the Oakwood Apartments. Yeah, I know that. Because that was the only it's place that here. would take me. In Toluca Lake, there's one. Yeah. Yes, that's uh -huh. right up here on Barham. That okay. was my, I stayed for the, my first month. Yep. Because you can't, the only way I could get someplace was a hotel or a corporate apartment. You can't book a, an apartment from, from another city. They yeah. want to meet you and fill of out course. a form. And so once I got here, then I found an apartment. But uh -huh. booked that, which is cheaper than a hotel. And once I got here, I sat down at my desk in my little Oakwood apartment mm -hmm. and stuffed envelopes. I sent out a thousand resumes. Okay. I got a book that listed every single production company in the business. I didn't know anything or anyone. Email would have been faster. Yeah, I'm didn't exist. <laughs> so had to do it by, by hand. It took me a week and I wanted to send everyone an individual letter. So it didn't look like it was, you know, like I was sending out spam. Yeah. I want to sign each one. And so that's why it took so long. And even with that quantity, that shotgun approach, my response was only one out of a hundred response rate. Okay. So if I don't, if you only send out a hundred resumes, you might get no responses and think, oh, I'm, I'm never going to succeed. Sure. Maybe you just didn't send enough because it was all about timing. That's right. The ones that responded were the ones who that day, typically their production assistant had put in their notice. Mm -hmm. My resume arrives. Oh, this one just arrived because otherwise it goes in the trash. Sure. Right? And I got a call. Ultimately, I got seven phone calls, which led to three interviews and two job offers. And so I took one where I ended up working yeah. for the next five years. As a PA? Started as a production <clears throat> assistant, runner, fe fetching the lunches. Yeah. And I was the best lunch fetcher they had ever seen. You're going to excel at whatever you did, right? <laughs> yes. Yep. Mm -hmm. I organized a chart. And when they wanted their, their, everyone wanted a salad, made it the salad bar. I made them fill out a little, okay, what do you want? So I knew exactly everyone's likes and favorites. And I was like, delivered it just the way they liked it. And then I got promoted eventually to an assistant. And I didn't plan it that way. But what happened was when you're there every day, you just have to show up. That's one of the keys to success is sure. just show up. With a positive attitude. Yes, <clears throat> can do. You're, you're the person that they can count on. You're reliable. You get there before everyone and you leave after everyone. And when that happens, sometimes an assistant calls in sick. Mm -hmm. And okay, well, Roger's here, put him in the chair. So I would sit in for Larry Bresner, who was a manager producer I worked for, and okay. Buddy Mora. When their assistant was out, I would sit in and, and answer the phones for them and make their return phone calls and send out packages and just deal with whatever had to be dealt with. And I was overwhelmed because I'd never really done that before. 
but I just put all my attention on it and did the best I could. And I felt like I was like running in quicksand. After that time, like spending a week in someone else's chair, Buddy Morris, uh, Morris said uh, he, he wanted to hire me for that. He, he fired his assistant and hired me instead. Really? I didn't want and intend to get that person fired. No, of course not. But he looked at the qualitative difference in terms of how it affected his life, how, because I was so much more organized. Sure. And it made a difference in his life. And so then I got promoted and eventually to a talent scout. My job was to go to comedy clubs and look for stand-up comedians because they managed comedians okay. and bring them to their attention. All the while I was working on my own projects, you know, trying to get a film made. Interesting. Got it. And so you worked with that organization for many Almost years? Almost five years. Okay. Yeah, it was virtually five years. It was one of the greatest jobs I've ever had because it was like a family there. It I seems like lucky. you're learning everything about the behind the scenes of what happens in Hollywood. Right? You need to mentor somebody who's mm -hmm. already doing it because yeah. th they can't teach you in film school. No. Some of the nuances like how to say no. There's a way to say no when sure. people, because when you're an agent or a manager, you get a lot of phone calls for their clients. You know, yeah. for your client, we want to hire, we want to book Billy Crystal or Robin Williams or Martin Short or David Letterman or Woody Allen. These were their big clients. Yeah. And most of the time they've got to say no. And there's a way to do it that people go away happier than they they arrived, even though you said no, because you put it to them, you said no in a nice way. Of course. Which keeps, it's still, you keep them, you value them and their input because you want people to keep coming to you. With yeah, you offers. do. Yeah. And where the bad managers I saw were not good at sending people away happy. I got it. Yeah. No, that's a good way to put it. In life and everything, right? There's a way to communicate. Right. Where you don't burn bridges and things. Yeah. Manager's job is to say no. That was what I noticed there. Mm -hmm. They rarely said yes because they like Billy Crystal to do one big movie per year. Otherwise, you get overexposed. Yeah, the clients get overexposed and you start to, oh, I've seen them in three movies. I'm tired of that one. Yeah. As opposed to, oh, how exciting, a Billy Crystal movie. And, and I'm, I know it's going to be good because you build up a reputation for being a good product. Sure. And they helped them pick quality. Quantity and not quality. Yeah, quality and not quantity. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I, I would have never thought about that, you know. Um, so, but was, you kind of led down to the path of editing, right? Yeah, you know, I came to Hollywood wanting to be a filmmaker. I want to make movies, but I didn't really know what that meant And it was yet. all, be, you all had visions of behind the camera. Yeah, calling right? the shots, you uh -huh. know, being the next big filmmaker. Yeah. And it, Nothing ever goes the way you expect. You know, there's the old Woody Allen joke. If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Because <laughs> nothing ever goes the way you expect, ever, right? Yeah, uh -huh. But you need to be open to opportunities. Sure. And it turned out, I found I had a knack for editing. Okay. And I didn't know that. I had never really pursued editing specifically. Or even when I started out, I had other people editing for me. Like on my first feature... I hired an editor. Uh, it was this low-budget comedy called High Strung okay. that starred a comedian named Steve Odekirk, who later uh, wrote uh, like Patch Adams and Jimmy Neutron. Oh, cool. And Kung Pao, The Fist, I forget what it was called, comedy, lots of comedies. Yeah. And there also has Denise Crosby in it. We cast her, who became a part, my partner in a Trekkies later on. And Jim Carrey is in it with a brief cameo, unbuilt okay. cameo. And doing that, that first film was, I didn't expect that I would be editing it. I just thought I'd be directing it. But I sat in the editing room and I watched my editor 
And by week five, looking over his shoulder, I realized I knew how to do it. Hmm. So I kind of pushed him out of the way and finished the movie. Wow. <laughs> and because I thought it's just so much faster if I do it than if I have to put it through him and then he's got to do it and he's got to, got to try variation. So ever since then, I've been editing and people started offering me jobs to edit once they saw the product. And I say yes to opportunity. Sure. Yeah. And so those were where the mo the greatest opportunities came from. I've also directed and produced and written, of course. Yeah. But mostly I've been editing because that's where the majority of my job offers come from. Interesting. And so as you are, you know, I guess the connections that you're making, that's really kind of where the the more exciting stuff kind of happens, right? As you're editing this piece and you're meeting this person, they're introducing that person. That's like Hollywood connections, right? That's where yeah. it takes you. Yeah. It's crucial who you know, because you don't know what knowing that person is going to bring to you. Uh huh. It, it's often surprising that someone I've worked with a year later or six months later, five years later, turns up and says, hey, would you like to do this thing with me? Mm -hmm. When I was working at my job as a runner, as a messenger, I met somebody who was at my same level at Paramount where our company was located. His name was Luis Estrada. And he was kind of a peon like me, but he was in the accounting department. And we became friends, had lunch and tried to get films made together kind of on the side and never succeeded. And we went our separate ways. And he ended up as uh, many years later as a, an executive at TNT Latin America. Oh, okay. So I got a call from him one day. Luis said, hey, I'm at this, I'm now at TNT Latin America and we need someone who can make promos for us. Okay. And I know you've been doing some, uh, you know, you made a film and you've been doing some editing. Do you want to try producing and editing some promos? And I said, yes, because I was at that point, $30,000 in debt. Yeah. And so I, anything would sounded good. Sure. I spent two years writing and producing and editing promos for TNT for things like the Betty Davis movie marathon. Okay. So I would have to edit a short encapsulization of her career, then we'd hire a voice talent to replace my voice over voiceovers. Yep. But what it taught me was editing commercials and promos when it's gotta be fitting into a 15 second slot or a 30 second slot, every frame counts. So I spent two years, it's like shooting layups, like practicing my craft and learning how to edit. And that those are all the skills that I took forward into becoming an editor. And which is why when people saw my work as a comedy editor, they, I think they started to notice that I had a, a knack for making things funnier Got by the it. way I edited. Hmm. It's because I practiced, you know, I've gotten in my 10,000 hours or whatever. Yeah, outliers, right? Yeah. So is there, is that really a thing? Is there a difference between like drama editors and, and sci-fi editors and comedy editors? That's a thing, huh? Yeah, for, for sure. Really? Comedy I don't think editors, the ordinary person would even know that, yeah. A comedy editor gets paid more than a drama editor. Okay. Because there are fewer of them that are good. And the reason is that you can tell when something's not funny because you're not laughing. Hmm. With drama, it's you, it's harder to discern is this dramatic or not. You know, you can you can slide more and get away with it. And you what you might be a little looser of an editor and get away with it. But if you're a comedy editor, you've got to be tight. You got to have it right. It's got to be working, hmm. or or it shows. Sure. And now is the editor usually on set watching this being filmed? Real time Sometimes, too? but rarely. Okay. Most of the time you are in the, your little room sorting through mountains of footage. Because get, I would imagine that like you're like 
taking in the reactions of like the crew, right? Of what is funny too, right? If you're on set. Sometimes I've done, I have been to the sets and, yeah. and observed, but I found that to be just more of a lark. It's just fun to do. Uh -huh. You don't really know what you've got until you look at it on the screen in the editing room. The way something is shot, you, let's take the tempo for instance, mm -hmm. it's almost always too slow. The director, the way that he directs it, he or she, or the actors, the way they act it, or the way it's written, it's always written or acted or directed too slow. I see. And in context, when you juxtapose shots and start building a scene, I always start speeding things up, especially in comedy. I see. In drama, you've got to let it breathe more so you can feel the emotion in the silences. But in comedy, there's no time. You, you need to get from one joke to the next or you're going to lose them. I got it. And mm -hmm. you don't know what timing until, to use until you get there in that room. And so they don't know on set. They have no idea, really. Mm. what I do. I see. They're kind of oblivious. A lot of actors will watch themselves on screen and go, well, I'm pretty good, having no idea how much work I did behind the scenes to fix their performance and to fix their enunciation and speed things up and drop mistakes or word stumbles or all the ums and you knows and the pauses and or I call it word baggage. Yeah. I sweep all that away and clean it up so that they seem to flow effortlessly. Interesting. So when you like, let's just say Will Ferrell, right? You know, uh, I can imagine that, you know, there's the way in which the script is written, but then there's all the imp improvised, you know, scripts as well, right? Where he's just kind of doing improv. So as the editor, are you like looking through multiple different takes to, and sometimes maybe even using the improv version and not really what's on the script if it's funnier? Often. Yeah. But it depends on the performer. Most actors are not good at improv. Okay. It's a specialized talent. I but see. When, when you've got Will Ferrell or you've got somebody. Um, Steve Carell. Uh, right. Steve yeah. Carell is great at, at improv. Yeah. Yeah. Or mm. Christopher Guest and his, his entire cast in one of his films are chosen for their improv abilities. Mm -hmm. That's a completely different approach than cutting the script together. Like when I was editing Grey's Anatomy, I'm basically just cutting the, the performances into the way it was scripted. I see. There's no to little improv on a show like that. They hmm. write the scripts, they like what they've written, and they want it shot that way and edited that way. Whereas the exact opposite is Curb Your Enthusiasm, obviously, where it's entirely improvised. Yeah. And so it's on me to figure it out in the editing room how to build a scene out of every, all these, every take is different. So they rely on me to become a, a partner in the storytelling. That is interesting. And, and this had led you to write your first book, which is called Cut to the Monkey. Yes. Well, okay. that's, it, technically, it's my second book. That's your second book. Okay. But my first on the film industry, my first book was about marriage. It's called The Truth About Marriage, and it's a companion book to my documentary about marriage. And I'm not married, so, you well, know. Well, we'll talk about your yeah. first book second, right? <laughs> the second book, Cut to the Monkey, <laughs> was me, after meeting a lot of editors who I thought, they're doing it wrong. Uh -huh. <laughs> I, I wrote, well, here's the way to do it. When I was on Grey's Anatomy, one of the editors came up to me and said, hey, how do you cut comedy? kind of feeling the same way you're feeling when you're asking me, is there a difference? Yeah. Because there are comedic moments on Grey's Anatomy, and that was one reason they, Krista Vernoff hired me. It's because they were going back towards their comedic roots, and they wanted to try to make the show a little funnier like it used to be, because it got really serious for a while, for yeah. many seasons. And so the editors who were already there were used to the very dramatic flow. Sure. So he asked me for some pointers. And so I, oh, yeah, sure. I wrote a list of like, I don't know, 10 or 12 things to do. This is to the editor of the show at the yeah, time? Yeah, one okay. of the editors. There's four editors on Grey's Anatomy. And so I gave him a list and I just kept going. 
after I wrote him that list and I thought, I guess, you know, I got a lot of ideas about, yes, there's a lot of things you can do to make things funnier and better. And, you know, for example, I told him when he wanted to be funnier, look to the wider shots because drama is in the close up in the face. But if you want something to be funny, you want to see the body language. Mm. If someone's standing awkwardly, there's extra humor to be found in that. So get away from the close ups. That, you know, that's one thing. And also speed it up. Faster comedy is funnier comedy. Mm. as opposed to your dramatic scenes where you can slow it down. So I gave him this list and then just kept going and cut to two years later, I'd finished this book finally. And so the the book is, it's such a, is it like a micro niche where you're really trying to reach out to editors, Hollywood editors? Is that who the book was really written for? Uh, primarily, yeah. Okay. It's like a cookbook for editors. Huh. Here's how it's done. From what, from what I've learned, and I asked, I also interviewed all of the showrunners I was working with for their wisdom. So I infuse it with all of the wisdom from Larry David and Judd Apatow and uh, Sasha Baron Cohen and Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Krista Veronoff, yeah. et cetera. And laid out, this is the way editing, when you're editing a scene, here's how you break a scene down and put it back together again. Here's how, what to look for and what to get rid of. Follow these rules and your scene will be 15% funnier. Hmm. And most people don't understand a lot of these things. You find out through trial and error, but sure. I'll get you there faster if you want to read this this book. And for example, I it's amateur time when I look at somebody on screen is speaking. And if the dialogue is from somebody who's not on screen, like you're on a reaction shot or something other than the person speaking, and if I hear a pause or an um or you know, I know that's an amateur I because see. there's no reason to leave that in. If you're not on the person's face, you can you have total control over the dialogue. So you want to get rid of those that word baggage that does nothing. It adds nothing to the story for someone to say, you know. Yeah. So all of the looks and the listens, you know, look. So people will start a sentence by saying, look, yeah. blah, 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 blah. When they do that, it's like an announcement. They're saying, I'm about to speak. Pay attention to me. Well, just say the line. Yeah. You don't need to announce it. So I cut the announcements, cut the word baggage, tighten it up, and it's just funnier and flows better. And it's it's more interesting to watch. So when I go to the movie, I don't notice any of this stuff, right? <laughs> well, a good editor's gotten rid of it. <laughs> right. A bad editor's left it in. And you just come away thinking, eh, that movie was so-so. Could have been funnier. But, you know, maybe you don't put your finger on you why. You don't realize why. Yeah. Whereas you, when you're watching a movie, you're cringing in some cases. Often. Right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's really fascinating. It's very self-serving for me to write this book. So it reduces the amount of cringing I have to do on future projects. <laughs> I love that. <clears throat> so as far as writing the book, it seems like you, you're now writing another book, which would be, I guess, your third book. Third book is about making documentaries. Okay. Which is my other skill that I have. Um, I, my first documentary is called Trekkies, about Star Trek fans. And I fell into that by accident, kind of, because Denise Crosby, who was in my first film, we stayed friends. And one day she said, oh, I'm going to these Star Trek conventions. Are you a big fan of Star Trek? I'm, I'm a, no, Okay. I'm a fan. I okay. grew up watching it just like everything else that was in syndication. Yeah. I just loved science fiction. Uh -huh. Like uh, the time tunnel was on, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, The Immortal. Star Trek was just another sci-fi series yeah. from that time mm -hmm. for me. So, I, but I didn't become one of these people who went to conventions and, you know, I know people who are that way. Sure. And that's how I knew when Denise said, oh, someone should make a documentary about this world. And, and it was like, no one's done that yet? Of course. It's and did so you have obvious. any experience doing documentaries at all yet? No, or? not at that point. No, no okay. No. Huh. So Denise and I kind of teamed up and we, we just rented some movies, some documentaries and watched that. We watched My Brother's Keeper, Hoop Dreams, 
crumb and started trying to absorb the language of documentaries. Yeah. And we found a producer at a company called Neo Motion Pictures, Keith Border. His company put up enough money. We pitched it to them. They put up enough money to shoot one weekend at a convention that Denise Crosby was invited to as a guest because she was an actress who was on Star Trek The Next Generation. And we would see what the footage was like, if it was worth continuing. Mm -hmm. So we shot that weekend and we got interviews with six of the nine original cast members who were there at that convention, which was pretty good. We thought, wow, we did great. We got these six. But what was really amazing was the fans themselves. The, the footage was so colorful and so funny that when, once I had cut together this demo from that first shoot, it was, of course, we're going to finish this. We're yeah. on to something. Uh -huh. We've, you, you, you feel it when you've got something. Of course. It's like when you're fishing, you know, you cast, and you, you got something on the line. This is a fish, right? We knew we had something there. Yeah, sure. So we, we took it, you know, we, we, we kept going until we had a finished product. And how long did that take? It was nine months. It was nine the fastest months. documentary. They've taken longer every time <laughs> for some reason, partly because the, the subject matter was so colorful. Sure. We went to another six or seven conventions and then we had a film. And then where, like, did you sell it? Like, had We started going to film festivals. Okay. We started doing screenings. It was hard to get dis distributors and studios to look at it because there's so many films out there. We couldn't. Mm -hmm. Paramount seemed like the perfect home for it because they own Star Trek, the franchise, but we couldn't get them to look at it. They, could, they wouldn't, could not, couldn't be bothered until Denise Crosby was friends with one of the principals at a company called Beacon Entertainment. Okay. And she got him to look at the film and he flipped and said, this is fantastic. And they had a deal at Universal. So he made, he made Universal look at it. I see. And they said, oh yeah, this looks like there's money here. There goes the whole Hollywood <laughs> connections yes. again, right? Yep. And once we had an offer on the table from Universal, suddenly Paramount was, oh, oh wait a minute. We, we want to see it now. <laughs> and then we ultimately, we had a bidding war between the two of them and they bid the film up. The first offer from Universal was for $250,000, which okay. we were thrilled. Sure. Wow. And then what this bidding war got, got ultimately we sold it for uh, 1.25 million. Is that right? Was, that was the final bid that were topped out. And eventually you got to, you got to know when to, you know, fold and take your cards and take your chips off the table. Of course. And it just made sense. And we, we took that deal and uh, Paramount had a 20 year license. They essentially they didn't buy it. They licensed it. And so it just recently returned to us. And we're re-releasing it this year. Oh, cool! On Blu-ray and streaming, we just did a restoration and rescanned it in 4K, and uh, it's the first time it'll be available again in uh, first time it'll be available ever in high definition. Oh, cool! Congratulations! A company called Shout Factory uh, picked it up because nice. once again, Paramount they just they let it go. I see. But I, I I get it because the big studios they play for home runs every mm -hmm. time at bat. They want a home run. Sure. So a little documentary, we're a bunt. Yeah. You know, we got on base, but we're a bunt. And so it's just kind of beneath their radar. It's not what they do. Whereas Shout Factory, they specialize in films like this. And so they were excited to and license the rights. that's what you want, because they're going to put more behind it, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good mm -hmm. home. Yeah. And so that kind of led you down this new path of now, it seems like you had a passion for creating documentaries, right? Once, yeah, people have asked me, like, you know, uh, why, why did you know, why do you make documentaries, or how did you get started? You do it once. It's like doing heroin. You, oh, just try it once. You know, what's the big deal? You do it once, and you're hooked. Sure. Because making a documentary is so exciting. It's so much fun. It's so different than writing a script mm -hmm. and shooting a movie. I've done both. When you write a script 
You're always trying to reach what you imagined that script would be in your mind and falling short and being disappointed. It's never quite what I hoped it would be, but it's good. You know, it turns out good, you know, but you, cause your imagination, you have just high hopes. With a documentary, you don't know where it's going to end up. It's such an un unknown journey. And so life is, you're supposed to experience the journey in life anyway. That's where the greatest happiness is, is to experience the journey, not the arrival. It's, and it's a the documentary yeah. puts you on a journey. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And we went on this amazing journey, meeting amazing people. And uh, I, had no un, I had no expectations. I didn't know what to expect. And I was completely blown away at every, every time we stopped and inter interviewed people and in the editing room, working together as a team and until we finally you know arrived somewhere and screened it for an audience and found out we were our instinct was right people are liking they're enjoying what we created yeah there's no greater feeling than we now like i still get emails sometimes from people who've seen one of my films and they tell me how it affected them hmm. and it makes you feel it's like you were saying you know it's what you leave behind that matters it if, sure you, does. if you make something that touches people or changes them in some way or affects them in some way, it's incredible. It really is. That's the goal. Sure. And so the 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 documentary they see here, it was called The Nature of Existence. Yeah, I took on existentialism as a topic. Okay. Which is impossible. How do you make a documentary about existentialism? <laughs> what is it? What does it even mean? But I've been obsessed. I realized one day with existentialism since I was a kid. For those that don't know what that means in, in <laughs> English, go ahead. What is it? Yeah. It's asking the question, why do I exist? Why do I exist? What is the purpose mm -hmm. of life? What is my purpose? And for me, that first experience was when my father died at a young age. I was 13 and my dad died from multiple sclerosis. And that when someone you know who's close to you dies or has a near-death experience, it forces you to face your own mortality. Sure. Which is not what we like doing. We try to, to shove that under the rug and, and, and live in denial yeah. as much as we can of the fact that we're not going to be here one day mm -hmm. because it creates anxiety yeah. in the brain and depression that we're transitory. You know, the idea that the self that I feel will not be here someday is hard to deal with. And that creates great existential philosophers who've been asking these questions for eons. I'm not the first by any stretch, but why are we here? Sure. So I set out to answer that question, which is unanswerable. Yeah, it's not it's so subjective, <laughs> right. right? Yeah. But that was the, the challenge of doing that was what was exciting to me, to take mm -hmm. on an uh, impossible task. I didn't know where it would lead. And I took my cameras, went on the road, sought out experts from every major religion around the world and ask them these questions. What are, why are we here? What are we supposed to do? What is, is there an afterlife? What is sin? Is it okay to masturbate? And I yeah. took all their answers and juxtaposed them, intercut, and it became hilarious. Huh. When you watch people trying to answer the unanswerable, <laughs> and they all have answers that they're cocksure are absolutely right, but it's diametrically opposed to what someone else is saying. Yeah. It's... Uh, it's naturally funny to it, watch them. It is. Trying to answer these questions. Uh -huh. The ones who admitted they don't have the answers were the scientists. Sure. And I found them to be the most philosophical. For example, there was a particle physicist I interviewed at Oxford when I asked him, what is the soul? He said, the soul is a type of wishful thinking that resides in the frontal lobe. <laughs> <laughs> so succinct. <laughs> Yeah. And to the point, which is he's basically saying, 
it's hard to to cope with the fact we're going to die someday. Uh-huh. It's much easier to know that there's we're going to go somewhere else. Sure. And yeah. That's the modification the brain added at some point to deal with the fact with we had so much intelligence that it led to a consciousness and a, and a self-awareness and to an understanding of time and the fact that I was here, I didn't used to be here, someday I won't be here. How do I deal with that? Well, one way is to believe in an afterlife. Sure, sure. Whether there is one or not, I'm not saying there is or isn't. I'm saying the belief in it helps you feel better about it. Yeah, you you brought back a memory. So uh, 2021 was a tough year. Lost uh, two grandpa, like two grandfathers and my father, right? And so my first grandfather died around like January of 2021. Yeah, right at like pandemic time of mm-hmm. COVID. And so, uh, you know, we fly out, it's snowing, it's New York. And, you know, and as he's sitting in the casket or laying in the casket, all the family comes in, people are crying, people get up, say words. There's all these photos and there's a video playing photos in the background. And then all I could think about was like, this is how it ends, right? You know, and it kind of inspired me to possibly want to write a book at some point called Glimpse, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have the power, right? You're laying there. Now you don't have the power, but now I do being here witnessing this, getting a glimpse, I have the power to kind of control the photos and the memories and all of that, right? It kind of gave me an interesting perspective on on life from that. So. It brought you back into the moment. It did. Which yeah. is, that's where happiness lies, is mm-hmm. living in the moment. Yep. And that's what death, death gives us a chance to come back to the moment. And you, then you can start thinking about those quite, well, how am I going to use my time better? Sure. I've been wasting so much time. Mm-hmm. I've got to make some changes. Yeah. There's a moment in my documentary, The Nature of Existence, where I asked a comedian friend of mine, Bobby Gaylor, who was a writer now, about this uh, topic. And he said he had a similar answer experience to what you had, where he said he was working on a script once about a coroner. So he to do research, he went to the morgue mm-hmm. to just kind of get a feeling for the morgue. And he walked into a room and he walked in. In Los Angeles, a lot of people die. And so there was 50 dead bodies hmm. on tables and you know tables and spread around the room and in different stages of the process that the coroner goes through and bringing in bodies and sending them out to where they're going. Sure. And he was struck by this thought, which is exactly what you said, basically, that these people have lost their agency. They have no more choices to make in life. Mm-hmm. Their choices are over. Yeah. And he started thinking, well, I got to start making choices. I got to call my brother. I got to call my mother. I got to start writing that book I was ta- thinking about. Yeah. I got to do this. I got to do that. And it was just, it overwhelmed him with, I need to get get busy and start sure. using this time I'm wasting. Yep. But he had to be reminded, you know, physically of death again and again. And it's a disservice when our society tries to help us deny that, live in denial of death, mm-hmm. which is generally what happens. Yeah. Like, yeah, but whenever I was a kid, like, talk about death and my mom would be like, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about that. Right? Yeah. Like, but nobody wants to talk about that. But you, we, does, we, we need right? to. Mm-hmm. Many cultures do. Like, the you know, in, in Mexico, they have the Day of the Dead, where the dead are- Yeah, that's a big day. Re-experienced yeah. uh-huh. as part of who they are. And you got to remember them. That's it's important right. to remember the dead. Yeah. Because we want to be remembered, right? Mm-hmm. And so now we know that when we're gone, people will remember us on the Day of the Dead, and it makes us feel better. Sure. And it's good to talk about these things. And I found in making documentaries with hard questions, people love 
talking about these hard questions. Yeah. Where they're just waiting for someone to who, who's willing to talk about it. Sure. And open up and listen. And I just provide a, a listening ear. You know, it's what you're doing with your podcast. It's an amazing service that society needs. We need people who listen, yeah. who are willing to listen. Yeah. And capturing a moment in time and, you know, and the stories that you're sharing now will be listened to by other family members later on, right? Yeah. Maybe they'll find a nugget of something helpful in there. Maybe they'll learn something. Maybe it'll inspire them to do something. Yeah. Hopefully that, that's, you know, all you can hope for. That's really it. Yeah. Like I've, I've got this like vision, I guess, if you will, that, you know, when, when we die, um, that you get to meet the person that you were destined to become and you want to try to line up as much as you can so that when you shake the hand of that person or fist bump or whatever you do, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, that you are as closely aligned to who you were destined to become. Yeah. Right? If you got off track, what happened? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. forgot, you probably forgot to live in the moment and to be grateful. That's it. And to thank people and to tell Take people. Take chances, risk. Tell right. people how you feel. Mm -hmm. Express And ask people how they feel. Sure. That's the most important thing that we don't do enough of is ask people, hey, how are you feeling? Sure. And then listen. Yeah, that is key. So so then you, well, I'm not sure of this one. So I love, I love your documentaries, right? Because you're trying to kind of like answer questions that are almost impossible to answer. Right. right. Why the are we the here? Answer the better. Right. Yeah. And is there an answer why we're here? Yes. <laughs> There is. Do you want to hear the answer? I do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, it's, it's what I learned. This uh -huh. is my answer. Okay. Everybody has to find their own answer. Why yep. do we exist? What is your purpose? Yeah. That's up to each and every one of us to decide to, for ourselves. No one can give you your purpose. Mm -hmm. we, we People try to find people who will give them a purpose. Yeah. Go to the priest. What am I supposed to do? Well, you're supposed to do this according to this old ancient text. Yep. Okay. Well, that's one way to do it. The best way is to find a purpose in that's immersed in what it is you love to do. And you said this to me when I walked in here this morning, right? You ideally want to get paid to do something you love to do. That's right. Then you can live a happy life and get paid for it. Mm -hmm. But to answer your question, when I got to the end of the process of making, of shooting, filming the nature of existence, after I'd asked all these experts about it, my realization was that the universe is so is vast, right? And it's filled with stars that are being born or dying, you know, exploding stars and coalescing stars. There's star nurseries and and it's filled with creation and destruction. They're opposites. The universe is filled with opposites, matter and antimatter, sure. yin and yang, light and dark, creation and destruction. If you want to be happier in your life, this was what I learned. You can align yourself with either of those poles, creation or destruction, but you'll be happier if you align yourself with creation. Hmm. What does that mean? That means you behave creatively, not destructively in your life in general. Sure. So how do you be creatively, act creatively? Well, you could sketch, you could uh, make pottery, you could take a dance class, you could write a poem. It doesn't really matter as long as you're expressing yourself in some way, hmm. how you're feeling. I mean, an architect expresses how they're feeling through the, the lines of a house or a building. A, a business, you, writing a business proposal can be done in a very creative way that is successful. Sure. It, whatever you do, you want to be creative daily for a few minutes every day if you want to increase your happiness. 
And that's your purpose, to find a way to be creative. Now, for most people, the default is to create a new, younger version of themselves and try to raise it up to be as, you know, better than you were. Mm -hmm. You know, if people have babies and suddenly that becomes the focus of their life for the next 18 years or however long it takes to kick them out of the basement. <laughs> so sometimes it's 30 years. But having a baby, I read a statistic somewhere, adds 30 hours of caregiving to your life mm. every week. And so essentially that monopolizes all your time and your focus. Once that is over, once that, that you know, once that baby leaves the nest and becomes an adult, now you're back to where you started. There's a sense of emptiness, sure. What do you do now? Mm -hmm. Now you're back to asking that same question. What is my point in life? Yeah. What is my purpose? And then people at that point take up hobbies. Yeah. They take a pottery class or a dancing class and start to realize, oh, this is what I was missing. And part of what was missing in my life was creative expression. Sure. There was a study once where in a nursing home, there's 100 people and they gave everyone a plant. They told 50 of them, 50 of the residents, don't worry about the plant. We'll take care of it. Here's a plant for you, but you know you have no responsibility. We'll, we'll water it and take care of it. Mm -hmm. The other 50, they said, here's a plant. You need to water it and take care of it. It's your responsibility. The ones who had the responsibility lived longer. Just that little responsibility of caring for a plant because growing a plant, that's creation. Like it's, planting a garden. Yeah. That If you want to have a purpose in life, plant a garden and you will find a happiness you didn't know was within you because you're watching life come forth from something you did. Wow. And it's programmed into who we are to that, want to create. That is powerful. That was my lesson. What mm -hmm. I came, so, and, and I create by making documentaries, by editing, by writing. Yeah. On a daily basis, I express myself in some way. Yeah. And this, it's funny you referenced nursing home. The other vision that I have is, you know, uh, when it comes time, right, I'll probably end up in a nursing home. Right? A lot of people do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> My goal in life is to be the coolest guy in the nursing home, right? I want to have all the cool stories. I want to have photos to prove it, right? Right. That's my goal, you know? So I got to find a, a nursing home where there's not as many cool people, right? So <laughs> I worked in a, in a nursing home all through college and yeah. I loved it. Uh -huh. A lot of people found it very depressing. So many stories, right? Well, there's yeah, different wisdom. wings. You know, there's mm -hmm. the wing with the, the dementia wing. Yeah. Where they're, they're essentially gone because yeah. their memories are gone. Sure. But they're still people. They're still human beings and, and they're still cared for. And they're still entertaining. Uh -huh. I, st I loved interacting with them. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> you never knew what was going to come out of their mouths. You don't. Uh -uh. And then there was the, the wing where they still had their fully have had their faculties, but they just they're physically not as strong anymore. And so they couldn't care for themselves. And I love joking around with them. I would treat them like my friends and, and just give them shit. And, and uh, they loved it because most people would treat them like furniture or like they are very fragile or very cautiously. And I would just come in and make jokes. Yeah. And they would couldn't wait for me. You know, I was a maintenance man. Uh -huh. Couldn't wait for me to come through and empty their basket or change the light bulb. And they yeah. would play jokes on me. <laughs> there was a guy named Burger Person. And he was a Swedish, old Swedish man. And I went into his room once to empty his garbage. And he said, hey, there's a problem with my window. Uh -huh. said, oh, what is it? He said, over here, go, go over there and, and check it out. So I went over, looked at the window. It seemed fine to me. I said, what's wrong? It looks fine. He said, feel it, put your hand on it. So I put my hand on the window. And I said, what? He said, do you feel the problem? I said, no, what's wrong? He said, do you feel the pain? I said, no, I don't feel the pain. And he's laughing. Is that, are you sure you don't feel the pain? And he's laughing and laughing. No, I don't feel the pain. The and pretty soon pain. I realized, oh, ah, <laughs> burger. And that's great. Yeah. They See? couldn't get away with that with, with a lot of people. But me, you know, we just 
I just treated them like friends. That's the way to do it. My, it's funny you say that because my my son's first job, right? He was like 17 years old and his first job was working in a nursing home, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> my wife helped him find the job. Let's use hiring clothes, right? And so he got a job there and he was like, you know, working in the dementia uh, department as well. And he'd come home with the most interesting stories. <laughs> and I think it gave him a good perspective on life, right? You know, he's like, oh, there's... There's a lady, we call her the cookie lady because she always wants cookies, you know, and sometimes <laughs> I'll sneak and get her a cookie. And and then there's this guy, uh, you know, Frank, and he's from New York and, you know, he misses his wife. And he always asks me, where's, 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 you know, whatever, Daisy, you know. And then, uh, you know, and he doesn't know how to answer. He's like, I don't know. You know, what do you mean? Where's and, and I'm like, just say she, she's here. She loves you. You know what I mean? And so, like, you know, just kind of give him an advice on how to kind of deal with situations. But, boy, what a great first job uh, for him to kind of do that. Yeah, totally it's awesome. Great. I highly recommend anyone <laughs> work at a nursing home sometime. Yeah. Because you're uh -huh. surrounded by people. You're, you're surrounded by centuries worth of wisdom. Sure. Also. Yeah. The same guy, Berger, who we became pals. And he... Once one day I was there on a Sunday and the water pump broke. I don't know how to fix a water pump, uh -huh. <laughs> but they needed water and there was no way to get a plumber in there on that Sunday. So Berger said, come here, I'll talk you through it. So Berger, you know, walked in there into this utility room with me and he said, okay, undo, take the, the ratchet, undo this, undo that. Cause we had spare parts. Yeah. And, and he t talked me through putting a new water pump in. See? Cause he knew how to do it. He's done it. Yeah. Uh -huh. The wisdom was there. There is a lot of wisdom. And they like, they love to share it. Yeah. You know, the, the Native Americans used to put all the old timers in charge of the, the very youngest people. Sure. And to now we put them in separate houses where it makes much more sense to combine them so they can share their wisdom. Mm -hmm. While the people who are, you know, in the middle age ages are out hunting or doing what they have to do to support the tribe. Sure. Sure. Yeah. No, it's a good point. Good point. All right. So we have this thing we call it Hennessy Heart to Heart where we just ask questions, simple questions, and then whatever first comes to mind, you just respond with. Okay. So the first question here is, what inspires you to be a better yourself? <laughs> every time I'm terrible, every yeah. time I'm horrible, every time I do a terrible thing or I, I make a huge mistake, it's like, oh, you, you should do so much better. Usually it's when I, I hurt someone emotionally or sometimes, you know, inadvertently. And sometimes it, it comes naturally because I feel hurt myself mm -hmm. if in an argument or something. Mm. I'm constantly disappointed in myself. Yeah. For, for But I'm a human being, right? And and we're not perfect. And so uh, you, you got to give your, you got to forgive yourself and sure. others and just try to do better. Yeah. Good answer. Where are you the happiest? Away from people out in the middle of nowhere or maybe with one or two people yeah. fishing in Northern Canada. Okay. Away from the internet. Yeah. Huh? I'm never so joyful as when I'm in the, out in the middle of uh, Ontario on Lake of the Woods. Yeah. And there's no access to Instagram. Got it. What book most greatly changed your perspective? <laughs> well, for the film industry, it would probably be What Makes Sammy Run. Okay. Bud Schulberg wrote this book in the 40s. And it's about the inner workings of Hollywood. And it's still accurate. Anyone who is contemplating the film business or in the film business should read What Makes Sammy Run. Okay. That inspired me. What inspired me probably in 
the direction I went to make The Nature of Existence in a lot of the, the concept documentaries was a book by Carl Sagan called The Demon Haunted World, where Carl Sagan essentially debunked everything. Hmm. From demons to witches to aliens, you name it. He explains why people have believed these things, the origins of these mythologies. I'll have to check that book out. If you could eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? Thai food. Thai food. For sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you knew I was going to say that. <laughs> yeah, I, I love Thai food. Plus uh, any, any East Asian, uh, Southeast Asian food. Got it. Most people I think their go-to is like Italian, right? Yeah. I love Thai food though. I mean, yeah. I love food I love, in general. Yeah. What I don't like though, I guess is what I grew up with, which is that Midwestern wheat-based bee cultural style of food. Sure, sure, sure. I've yeah. evolved out of that and uh -huh. into much more of a world flavors. Okay. Yeah. I, I discovered Indian food for the first time in my oh, life yeah. when I was like Love 35 years old. I'm like, how have I been missing this my whole life, right? You got to try new things you, and try new new foods. And yeah. I never had sushi when I before I moved to Los Angeles. Uh -huh. And I got here, I was working at for the company I made Trekkies with and I wanted to make my next film. And so I went to lunch with a producer who had seen Trekkies and he was considering helping me finance my next film Six Days in Roswell, uh -huh. about UFO fanatics and suckers, my car salesman comedy. And so I had to be very respectful, you know, because I wanted him to put up the cash. Yeah. He invited me to lunch at a sushi restaurant. Uh -huh. I'd never been before. Huh. So I, okay, I met him there and we he said, let's sit here. We sat at the counter with the chefs in front of us and he said, I'll order. He's Japanese. So he's, he knows what to order sure. better than I do. I don't know a thing. So he just says to the sushi chef, just bring us whatever is fresh. Huh. So they started putting things down in front of us, you know, eggs, uh, fish, fish eggs, eggs, yeah, you know, and mackerel mm -hmm. and uh, yellowtail. And I had never put anything like that in my mouth before. And, uh -huh. and where I grew up in Minnesota, you never eat raw fish. Sure. It's not done. Uh -huh. You cook fish because you'll get parasites or, That's you know, it's dangerous. Yeah. Whatever. But I wanted his cash. So I put whatever they put in front of me, I put it in my mouth. <laughs> and it was so delicious. See? I wasn't, I was converted. I, I, I've been loving and eating sushi ever since. Interesting. Because I was forced out of my comfort zone. Yeah. By my, by other needs. <laughs> See me, I don't, I don't explore much with food. Um, like that kind of stuff. Like, you know, I'll, I'll try things, but like I'm, picky eater. And I think it's just, it's all in my mind. You know what I mean? That's where it all begins. So I got to convince myself that it's okay to do that. Yeah. That's the best thing about having a girlfriend. She yeah. forces you <laughs> to yeah. improve your music collection and your tastes and your, your things you try or just meeting a new friend in general. Sure. Yeah. Somebody, they bring a different experience into your life and you're, you're forced you to try yeah. things. Sometimes accept it. What part of adulthood do you dread? Oh, I hate doing my taxes. Okay. I, hate, I hate numbers. I hate busy work. I mean, it has to be done. But when that time of the year comes, it's just drudgery. Okay. I, I, I hate following the stock market. I hate just watching numbers go up and down. I have no control over the numbers. And so it's it's just like, I don't like gambling because I don't like losing. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's a loss of control. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. I hate loss of control. And it's like ending up in the nursing home you don't want to end up in a nursing home with a, having lost control of your life. Sure. Yeah. That's my biggest fear. Yeah. Interesting. I hated renting an apartment because I was under the control of a landlord. Right. Mm -hmm. So I ended up buying my own place eventually. Huh. And I was still under the control of a bank. It turned out 
So yeah. until you're completely financially set, you're always under somebody's control, but I try to lessen it as much as I can yeah. so that I can make the choices in my life that I want to make without being subjected to others' needs or choices. Got it. Is failing less than, equal to, or more important than succeeding? Well, they go together, right? I mean, you can't, failure teaches you how to succeed. I think it's good to be a loser in high school. <laughs> that's, that's a quote. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a big success in high school, you don't learn the skills for dealing with all the failures and rejections that are going to come after high school. Yep, I can see that being a, a weakness. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, in hindsight. <laughs> Have you ever had a nickname? Oh, boy. My name is Roger. And so the nickname I've often given myself is Raja. Raja. Yeah. Okay. But when I was shooting a pilot for TNT about this ren renaissance bar, one of the main people that we were, it was in the group, he started calling me Blade. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Because I was so incisive, I guess. And okay, we're doing this next. I got it. Next, we're going on to do this. Now we're going to do this. Yeah. He's like, wow, this guy cuts right through everything. <laughs> How do you handle high stress situation? The film industry is one high stress situation after another when you're on a production. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be able to withstand it. And part of being a loser when you're young, it helps you build a strong enough shell so that you have the strength to get through it. I remember when I was filming my second movie, it was an action film called American Yakuza 2. It was so stressful because there were far more people involved above me. The higher the budget gets, the more stress there is because there's more cooks and more people you have to satisfy and you can't satisfy them all. And I felt like some days it was a complete disaster what we shot the day before. Hmm. But I had to put forth a face to the crew that everything is going great. Yeah, You don't want them to ever get a whiff of that desperation. You're, that you're stressed. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you're going, going to be stressed, and you, but you have to, if you're a leader, you have to manage it somehow. For me, it was jogging or hiking and physical activity. Yeah. And I still hike uh, hmm. every week, and that's, that's how I stayed alive is through hiking. Nice. What's one thing that would make the world a happier place? If there, well, first of all, there's way too many people. Yeah. <laughs> We're using up our resources. Overpopulation is the number one problem which is leading to, we're in the middle of the sixth great extinction. There have mm. been five great extinctions in the history of the planet. We are causing the fifth great extinction. And mm. why is that? Because we're programmed for selfishness. So how can we, what can we do about it? A little bit of selflessness okay. goes a long way. One of the uh, five love languages is service, Yeah. right? Acts of service. Service for others. Mm -hmm. The more that we can do that for other people, the better our world becomes. Totally agree. Yeah, I think about that a lot. What is your greatest fear as an adult? I had a lot more fears when I was younger than I do now. Yeah. But my greatest fear is that I will run out of ideas <laughs> because that's what I do is I, I come up with ideas and I develop them. Some blossom and some wither, but that, that my creativity will go away, I guess. Mm. I mean, yeah, I'm afraid of dying too. I don't want to die. Yeah. Who does? Because I'm having fun. I, life gets better and better. Every year it gets better. Even when it gets worse, it's getting better because you're still here and you're still, I'm still experiencing the bad stuff. Yeah. I think my greatest fear is losing my mind. Right. Well, if you, yeah. if you get dementia, right, and you lose uh -huh. your memories, yeah. you're gone. Who are you yeah. anymore? Now you're, you're more of a burden on 
people, you know, in some sense, right? You know, but you don't even remember who you are, right? And but people still love you. There are little moments when that happens, though. Imagine like when you get really angry, you behave differently when you're in a rage yeah. than when you do when you're more in control. Sure. That's not the same you. It's a different you. Yeah. You've lost control of who you are. And so we all have to learn to get along with each other to control our anger and not be hurtful, which yeah. is not easy. It's hard. Yeah, it is. So you've done a documentary on this, um, but according to you, what is the most important thing in a relationship? Well, yeah, the, the documentary is The Truth About Marriage and, and, and the book, The Truth About Marriage. If I had to boil it down to the one thing I learned after spending, I spent seven years traveling around, finding relationship experts and, and interrogating them mm -hmm. about why are relationships so hard for people? If 50% of relationships are ending in divorce, there's something wrong with this plan. And so what is it? And well, first of all, the problem was that we have expectations that are out of sync with who we are as a species. Mm -hmm. Our culture, our society gives us expectations for how we should behave you should get married by a certain date. You should have X number of children. You should do this. You should do that. All these shoulds, which may not align with what you're feeling you want to do. Mm -hmm. And that creates anxiety and then anger and then arguments. But knowing that, knowing, look, we live in the society we live in. So that's not going to change. Sure. It's a monogamous culture and we have to live within it. No matter what you feel, we want to fit within this culture in some way. I mean, there are polygamous you can find your groups, if, whether it's polygamy maybe, or or uh, a gay uh, gay community or lesbian community or whatever it is that's within you, you can find that group somewhere. But we have a culture overall that we all wanna fit in, fit within. And the thing I learned, if I was gonna boil it down, if you wanna have a happier relationship, whatever relationship you're in, if you're married, you've got a boyfriend, girlfriend, gay or straight, the number one thing you can do is check in with your partner emotionally daily. And we don't do that. Because we come home and we turn on the TV and we don't look at each other. We look past each other. We look sideways. We watch TV. The way to fix this, to fix your relationship, to give your relationship a chance to be fixed is, and I'm going to speak first to the masculine side of the brain. We all have both masculine and feminine. Some have, we all have you know, more of one than the other. And we typically end up with a person who has the opposite mm -hmm. that we have. If you're the more masculine person in the relationship, go home, try this experiment for a week. You got nothing to lose, it costs you nothing. Go home, put your phone, put your iPhone on airplane mode, mm -hmm. turn off the TV and the computer, make eye contact with your spouse and say, honey, how was your day? Mm. Or honey, how are you feeling? And then shut up. The instinct for the masculine is to try to fix things or offer solutions or ask, let's say your wife or girlfriend says, oh, my, my boss, he was so mean or he was so terrible today. And your instinct is to say, oh, you should quit that job. I don't know why you stay there, yeah. which makes her feel like she's made a mistake or she feels, makes her feel worse. Sure. When you should just say, oh, I'm so sorry that happened. Express empathy. Yeah. How was your day? And then express empathy, nothing else. And how, what does it mean to express empathy? It's to show that you understand how they're feeling yeah. by simply saying, oh, yeah. Oh. And obviously being authentic, right? Yeah. That helps. <laughs> yeah. Not a requirement, <laughs> but it helps. Uh. If you, some, a lot of men have compartmentalized and are able to continue thinking uh. about the game while they're sitting there making eye contact yeah. and doing their, because it's really the feminine partner just needs to express and download emotionally the events of the day. Yeah. Have someone who will just listen. That's right. For it, it, It's for about 10 to 20 minutes per day. It's like this emotional vitamin yeah. that the feminine part of the brain needs. Yeah. We all need it to some degree, but the feminine partner needs it the most. Sure. 
So if your sex life isn't going where you like, or you're arguing a lot, or you're not connecting, just try this experiment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guarantee after a week or so, things are going to get so much better because now that person is getting the vitamin that they weren't getting and were feeling anxious and then unhappy and then arguments and it's building up right they have to breathe out yes right? and you're just the way that get them to breathe out yeah that's the most important thing that the masculine can do and then there's a counterpoint i should add though for the what the feminine should do for the masculine person in the relationship the masculine side of the brain and we all have it like i said some more than others have one more than the other is the masculine needs to disconnect occasionally we all mm -hmm. want to connect we all want to connect we want to be together right but once the masculine connects, there's the countervailing instinct is to disconnect. To I want freedom. Sure. Now I need freedom. Yeah. And so, so the the masculine person connects and then orbits goes through this orbit of connection and disconnection. Yeah. The more you try to get in the way of that, the more it causes frustration and anger and arguments. And that's one reason that there's like the Elks Club or going fishing, going golfing. Hey, honey, I'm going golfing. Yeah. Right. Just going to the cave. John Gray calls it the going to the cave. Mm -hmm. There's a way, though, to disconnect. And according to the experts, the best way is to announce your disconnection. Honey, I'm going golfing with my friends. Now you've announced. And so she knows, oh, he's disconnecting. Mm -hmm. No need to be insecure about it. Sure. It's expected. It's normal. It happens once a week. But when you announce the disconnection, also announce when you're going to reconnect. Yeah. Honey, I'm going golfing with so-and-so, with Timmy and John. And I can't wait to see you for dinner at seven o'clock. There you go. So yeah. now she knows when you're going to reconnect. And it's crucial, though, if you say seven o'clock that you are home at seven o'clock mm -hmm. or call because yeah. your 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 word is important. Your your reputation oh. is all tied up into this. It's but crazy, but the feminine should not ask for don't get greedy. Don't ask for more than 20 minutes of relationship talk. Mm hmm. Because the masculine brain side of the brain, it floods. It's what Don, John Gottman, Dr. Gottman calls flooding. The masculine brain can only handle about 20 minutes before it overwhelms and starts getting frustrated and then angry. Interesting. So okay. limit yourself to those 20 minutes and it's best to make an appointment. If you want to argue about something or if there's a disagreement, argue by appointment. Got it. Honey, I'd like to talk to you about the garage because it's a big mess, right? Mm-hmm. When is a good time that would be convenient for you? As opposed to, honey, the garage is a mess and you're a slob. <laughs> that gets you nowhere. But if you set a time, an appointment, the, brain, the masculine side of the brain has time to adjust. They don't like the ambush discussions. Like it, yeah. So those are some of the most important things I learned. I learned many, many things about relationships that I had no clue about. But those, if I had to boil it down, those are some of the top pieces of information or advice I learned. Good advice. And then I'll end with this. What is something you know now that you wish you knew when you were younger? Oh, boy, can you imagine going back as a kid if you knew everything? Uh, could you, you imagine? I yeah. So many things I do differently. Yeah. But then I wouldn't have become the person I am today. That's right. You yeah. need to suffer a little bit. You need to make mistakes and trip mm -hmm. and fall. Yep. My parents used to say, go out, get out of the house and don't come back until it's dinner time. <laughs> and we would go out and we'd step on rusty nails and fall out of tree forts and get in all, fall in the lake and it sounds like bad parenting. Yeah. But it taught us how to survive life because the world isn't full of pillows and soft corners. No. Mm -mm. You can't protect a child from the future. The best way you can protect a child from the future is to let them- Experience life. Have troubles. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, I totally agree. 
you know, I mean, if I went back in time, I wish I knew what the stock market was going to do. Right. Yeah. With this Bitcoin thing. You know? Yeah. Gets by Apple. Uh -huh. <laughs> I think I would probably go back in time and, and tell myself, my younger self that, hey, there's this thing called energy, right? And there's negative energy and positive energy and always try to carry positive energy. I think I just did that mostly naturally, but you know, when you think that, I think it's powerful. Well, something drove you to where you are today. <laughs> yeah. You know, how did you, how did you get there? Right. Just power of positive thinking. That's right. Yeah. Abundance mindset, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and not really coming from much, right? That's, that's a big part. You so know, that's a good motivator. Yeah. You can take risk and you'll, if you end up failing, it's okay. Cause I've been at the bottom before. Right. So I know what that looks like. Well, Roger, this has been awesome. I, Appreciate you coming in. Um, I know that you're a man that values your time. You're very efficient. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Thanks for I, letting me come in and blather on. Yeah. And so <laughs> for those that, you know, want to maybe follow you or buy your books or follow some new documentaries that you're working on, how can they get in touch? Yeah. Check out all my documentaries and my books. RogerNygaard.com okay. will lead you to everything. But the books and the documentaries are on Amazon. Great. The Truth About Marriage, The Nature of Existence, my film about car salesmen, Suckers. Cool. And Trekkies is coming out again. Trekkies 2 is still out, is currently out. The Six Days in Roswell is also on Amazon. And uh, watch for the new book uh, about making documentaries in the coming year or so. Awesome. Well, when you start to create that documentary, let me know. I'd love to come maybe like witness it, you know. Oh, yeah. so that would be great. Yeah. For sure. You got a date. All right, let's do it. <laughs> Thank you again. You're welcome. This has been the Jason Hennessy Podcast. This show is produced by Whitney Welsh and Jenna Kershaw, engineered and edited by Josh Fisher, and recorded at Hennessy Studios. Please be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>